What we saw in Naaman last week was repentance. And by initially rejecting the word Elisha commanded him concerning his leprosy and how to heal it, Naaman went away. But after his servants expounded unto him more perfectly the word of Elisha, Naaman repented. He turned away from the direction he was going, and he believed what Elisha said about how to be clean. Now, are you tracking with that? Not only that, but Naaman went back to Samaria, and he gave thanks to Elisha, therefore to God, because Elisha was God's minister. He gave thanks to Elisha for the healing And now we are in verse 15. Let's continue in verse 15. Where Naaman proclaimed there in the middle of verse 15. 2 Kings 5 verse 15 if you're just tuning in. Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee take a blessing of thy servant. Let's look at that proclamation, that testimony that Naaman gave. Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. He had been worshiping other gods. As we'll see in a few moments, one of the gods, the god of the, I believe secular history records the god Rimon, as the god of wind, fire, and rain, or something like that in Syria, in their mythology. But he'd been worshiping other gods, so he's now forsaken them all, turning to the only God, to the Lord. One of the problems with religions that say, oh, we accept God, we accept Jesus Christ, is that they accept God along with all their other gods. They put other gods on an equal footing with the only God, which means they don't accept the only God. You can't say that God and Rimon and Molech and all of the gods, false gods we read about in the Bible, are all equal because they're not. He said, There's no God in all the earth but Israel. And that's not just the geographical land of Israel, but that he is the God of the Israel of God. The Israel of God is the church of the firstborn of all ages. Did you know if you're a believer today, you are of the Israel of God, whether you're a Jew or not? All of the firstborn of all the ages... The church of the firstborn of all the ages who've either looked forward to or looked up at or looked back to the cross where Jesus died and shed his blood for sinners and was raised again for their justification. So now that he's given that testimony, Naaman said, take a blessing of thy servant where the word blessing is a present You see how this same word in Hebrew is translated as the English word present. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 26, 1 Samuel 30, verse 26, listen for the word present, and it's the word blessing. And when David came to Ziklag, he sent of the spoil unto the elders of Judah, even to his friends, saying, Behold, a present for you of the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. So as a gesture of thanksgiving, Naaman wished to give a present, or in our text, a blessing to the man of God, to Elisha. Verse 16, But he, that's Elisha, said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, I want to give you a blessing. I want to give you a present. Elisha said, no, I won't take it. And Naaman said, please take it. And Elisha said, no. He was not seeking to receive a a gift in that moment because of what the Lord had done through him for Naaman. He refused it. Now, some may say, well, Elisha was just being ungrateful. No, he wasn't. In fact, there is much biblical precedent. There are some other places where this same truth is taught. Proverbs 29, verse 4. Proverbs 29, verse 4. Now, this is the solution For all political corruption everywhere in the world, on the local level, all the way to the presidency. And it says, The king by judgment establisheth the land, but he that receiveth gifts overthroweth it. Why is that there? What is it that causes any politician of any stripe to make a decision that is against the best interest or that goes against the word of God, first of all, and that is against the best interest of the people. It's a gift, isn't it? It's money. It's, it's what causes corruption. Or it, it might be better put, that's a symptom, a sign of corruption. It lets us know there's corruption in the heart. In Daniel chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar wanted Daniel to interpret a handwriting that appeared on a wall. And verse 16 is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, and verse 17 is Daniel's reply. And this is found in Daniel chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. So here's what Nebuchadnezzar said to Daniel. And I have heard of thee, that thou canst make interpretations... And dissolve doubts. Now, if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck and shalt be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts... Be to thyself, and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. In other words, king, you don't have to 
make me powerful, give me gold and scarlet and all of these things for me to do this thing you're asking. I'm, I'm a servant of the Lord. There's a writing on the wall. You've asked me to interpret it, and I'm going to do it. I don't need the gifts. Give them to somebody else. And you see, some gifts are given by grace, and we may graciously accept those. Every one of the gifts in this offering plate or on this table down here are grace gifts. They're gifts. God has graciously given the giver the funds, and the giver has graciously and obediently to God's command given those a portion of those back for the work of the Lord. Not to buy off the preacher or anybody else for that matter. But other gifts are given by greed, and we should reject those. In fact, when in doubt, just politely reject the gift. That's the best way to do it. If you say, you know, I'm having a hard time reading this guy. He sure is handing me that money awfully close to his evaluation time or awfully close to the time when the votes are to be counted. Push it away. You know, many pastors have fallen prey to this devilish scheme. A church may hire a pastor And once he's hired, some of the deacons may take him aside and set him straight about how things are supposed to run around here. And they promise the pastor a good salary and raise and benefits and all of these things, as long as he doesn't offend the members by his preaching. The first time that pastor ever agrees to any part of that deal, he's trapped. It'll never be the same. And even though that pastor may need the money to support his family, he'd be better off working two secular jobs and keeping his spiritual integrity than to accept gifts which pervert judgment. Elisha and Daniel refused to fall into that trap. The Apostle Paul also knew how many religious leaders particularly the Pharisees, had taken gifts that compromised their integrity. One example where he admonishes those in the church of Thessalonica is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, he said, For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable to unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Now, according to the first three verses of Acts chapter 18, we know Paul was a tent maker. He had a trade. So I believe we may rightly conclude here that he did some type of secular work, probably making and selling tents when he wasn't preaching the gospel to the Thessalonians. And he said... He labored day and night in travail because he didn't want to be chargeable to any of them. Not one. Chargeable means, it comes from two Greek words that mean a burden upon. A burden upon. Paul would not be a burden upon those Thessalonians. And by the same token, they would not be able to use their gifts to change what he preached. 
I know of a very large church in my area. I know a lot of very large churches, but one in particular. Or I could go and, brother, I could thin the crowd out just by preaching God's Word. Not by being mean-spirited or ugly or any of that, hollering and screaming at people, just by preaching God's Word. And I could get my salary lowered and get fired. However, as many mega church pastors have, one who goes there with his eyes on that paycheck will soon do what has to be done in order to keep that money rolling in and to keep the attendance high. And why do you want the attendance high? So the money rolls in. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul wrote, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, like the example I gave, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And he writes further to Timothy, But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Do you understand why Elisha said, Hey, I don't, I'm not here to receive gifts for your healing. And follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. In some cases, Paul wrote letters to the church. In this one, he wrote it to a pastor. And by extension, to the church. Because what he wrote to Timothy, Timothy was to tell others. So although this truth about the love of money applies to all people in positions of leadership, it is especially in this case directed to the pastor. Let me tell you, we've talked about this before, my pastor and I both have, in one way or another, we could fill this auditorium. He and I are very charismatic individuals and highly talented of the Lord. You know, I'm, I'm just playing there. But we could bring some people in. We could fill these pews and have people running all over the place throwing money down here by simply stepping away from what it is that we're doing right now, hum, trying to humbly preach God's word, give it to you so that you understand it and you can believe it or you can not believe it. We'd rather you believe it. And then you can act on it in faith and live your life and serve the Lord and do what he's called you to do or... We can entertain you. We can bring all sorts of worldly amusements in here. We could have a water slide and all of that other stuff going on. And I'll promise you, most of Maybank would want to be here. Now, don't misunderstand what we've just taught here and think, well, I guess pastors and teachers shouldn't be paid then. After all, they're just supposed to do God's work. That's not scriptural. That's a wrong interpretation. In fact, to the same Pastor Timothy, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. Let the elders that rule be counted worthy of double honor. And the word honor in the Greek language is price. Especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Who is it that should be paid the ones who labor in the word and doctrine. So what does that mean about all of these preachers 
of churches of various sizes who don't labor in the word and doctrine, they shouldn't be paid. That's the extension of that verse. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. And the Greek word for reward means hire or wages. A better way to understand this principle as it applies to a pastor's salary is that a pastor's salary should be the same whether he preaches on the love of God or on the wrath of God, as long as it's the truth. It shouldn't go up when the people are happy and go down when they're displeased. It's not connected to the stock market. It's not based upon consumer sentiment. And I'm so thankful for the way the members and visitors of this church have graciously applied those principles. I'm very thankful, and I think Pastor would say the same thing. He has, in fact. <laughs> thank you a few times for that. So, so I'll say it again. Thank you. And to our online members and to people across the world who have given of themselves so that the, the Word of God can be labored in, that doctrine can be taught. That's why they're doing that. That's why you're doing that. And as we leave this verse, let's remember that Elisha sacrificed his oxen and used the wood from those yokes to set the fire. When he trusted God to take care of his needs, when he followed Elijah, he knew God would provide for him, so Naaman's gifts were of no interest to him. Now he's refused to take Naaman's gifts. Let's look at verse 17. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules' burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. What a strange request. You won't take the present that I want to give you so I want you to give me two mules' burdens worth of earth. I would have never written that myself. That's God-inspired right there. We'd use a dump truck today, wouldn't we? What's plainly stated here is that Naaman wanted to take some dirt back from the place where Elisha was in Samaria. And oh, you ought to read the commentators. They're all over the place on this one about why he did that. Why would he want to load two mules worth of burden of dirt, of earth, and take it back to Syria? What could he possibly do with it there? Well, let's look at our context. In verse 17, we have a little bit of a hint, and that's in the second part of the verse when he said, right after asking for that load of dirt, for thy servant, or because thy servant will henceforth offer. There it is. It's connected with an offering. Offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. All right, so now what he's doing with this dirt is connected somehow with offering only to the Lord, but not to other gods. Where do you think he got that idea from? Well, Exodus chapter 20 is one place. Exodus chapter 20, in fact, verses 23 through 24 in those commandments. Where God said, Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, 
and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee and I will bless thee. Naaman knew a little bit about the scriptures, didn't he? The Lord had delivered Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of the bondage of Pharaoh. And at Sinai, he commanded them to build this altar of earth. The Lord delivered Naaman from the bondage of leprosy. So it may be that Naaman would do the same thing after the pattern of the children of Israel, build an altar of earth. Now, I can't be certain that's what he was going to do with it, but the indications are here is that he would do that, or at least it tends to support that. I can't think of another reason he would do that other than just coming up with some silly conjecture on my part, although there may be another reason. Well, let's look in verse 18. Now, Naaman continues, talking to Elisha, In this thing, the Lord pardoned thy servant. That, when he says thy servant, that's another way of saying me. So in this thing, the Lord pardoned me. In other words, I want to be pardoned for this thing. That when my master, that's the king of Syria, goeth into the house of Rimon, that's a false god of Syria, to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand. And I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. Now, I want you new Christians to really pay attention here. In fact, I want all Christians to, but this, this may be where some of you are in your own lives. Based upon Naaman's faith in the Lord and what Jesus said about him in Luke chapter 4, I believe Naaman became a Christian here this day. I don't have any reason to believe otherwise. He certainly had a change of heart concerning the word of God Elisha spoke to him. And his actions afterwards supported his conversion. He turned around and went all the way back to Samaria, the opposite way of Syria, just to give thanks. But as it is with you and me, Although Naaman's spiritual position had changed, his earthly position had not. He was still the captain of the host of Syria. In other words, he was in charge of all the army of Syria, and his master was his king. And now immediately after his cleansing, and I believe after his conversion here, he faced a serious spiritual dilemma, just like a lot of new Christians do and maybe some who have been Christians for some time. He has just confessed that there was no God in all the earth but in Israel. And he was correct. And because of this earthly position as the Syrian king's right-hand man, Naaman had to go where his king went. If the king bowed down, now this is anywhere. If the king bowed down, Naaman dare not remain standing. And that was, and probably still is, but that was a practice in many cultures throughout history. That the king is to remain physically higher than all of his subjects. And if the king were to bow down or stoop down, none around him would dare be higher than he. If he knelt, they would fall on their faces. 
Naaman said his master would lean upon his hand. And that by implication here, that would cause Naaman to physically bow down as well. And the act of physically bowing down in the house of Remen was a disturbing thought to Naaman. Because he asked ahead of time to be pardoned for that. After all, the appearance it would give was that he was worshiping the false god Rimmon. Even though as a Christian, Naaman would not be bowing his inner man, his spiritual man, to Rimmon. That was his dilemma right there. I'm a Christian, but I'm about to go. I know this is going to happen. I'm about to go into the house of Rimmon with my master, and he's going to lean on my hand like he always has, and we're going to both physically bow down in that house. And, and I know that's not right. Why else would he ask to be pardoned in that? Well, what were Naaman's choices? Boy, this is good stuff right here. This is good, practical stuff from the Bible. One of his choices was to, to say, well, I'll bow my body. I just won't bow my heart. That would allow him to keep his position and his life. Another choice would be to refuse to go into that temple of Rimmon at all. Refuse to bow, violate the custom, offend his king, which not only would cost him his job, but probably cost him his life. Or he could quit the job altogether, so he wouldn't be placed in that position. We're going to get some more guidance for this problem, because the answer is both easy and hard. In Exodus 23... Verses 23 through 24, Exodus 23, verses 23 through 24. The Lord wrote through Moses, For mine angel shall go before thee, and bring thee in unto the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but shalt utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images, their, their idols, the statues. In that passage, God told his people not only not to bow to the false gods, but to overthrow the heathens and to break down their images. And although Naaman racially is probably a Gentile, if he's a Christian, he's one of God's people. So he's bound by this command not to worship other gods. He said, there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now here's another from the psalmist in Psalm chapter 95, verses 6 through 7. Psalm 95, 6 through 7, this is a positive command. Where he wrote in this wonderful song, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That's why you would bow down and kneel before him. How many of you have attended a wedding in a Catholic church before? I'm raising my hand because I have. Okay. When you go into that place, you'll see Catholics 
stop before they enter a pew. And they'll bow down in the direction of a statue that's usually about 15 or 20 feet high. It's at the front of the church. It's the first thing you see when you walk in. Beautiful architecture, beautiful sculpting, but it's an idol. And these people, these Catholics, will bow down in the direction of that statue, which is supposed to be of Mary or of some so-called saint. They'll cross themselves and maybe say something uh, religious. So let's say you're getting in the pew behind that person and you see them do it. And then you come to that decision point, what do you do? Well, you don't do it. You don't bow down. You go sit, scoot in the pew and sit down and watch the wedding and then get up and go. But what if the priest, let's say you don't bow down and you sit down and the priest or maybe one of their deacons comes to you and says, Sir, you, you have to bow the knee before you enter that pew. That's, that's our custom. Don't do it. In fact, not only don't do it, but leave the place. Catch the wedding on Facebook if you're being required to follow a custom that goes against the scriptures just so you can stay inside the building and watch the wedding. At that point, when you're given that ultimatum, you leave. When you become a Christian, your earthly life gets harder in many respects, not easier. If a hitman becomes a Christian, he can't return to his job on Monday, can he? Except to resign. <laughs> if he becomes a Christian, he won't want to keep killing people for hire or for any other reason. If a bartender becomes a Christian, he won't want to return to his job where he keeps helping people get drunk so they can drive and kill themselves or innocent people in a wreck. He won't want to cast a stumbling block before them so their families at home can continue to suffer while he gets drunk at the bar every night and spends all the money that should be going to support his family. Perhaps you as Naaman are facing a difficult point, a dilemma such as this in your own life. And I will not tell you that the decision is easy, but it is simple. You'll either obey God or you won't. That's the bottom line. And if you choose not to obey God, then don't come to me and say, in this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, because you're making provision for the flesh. I said the decision was simple but not easy. Romans chapter 13, verses 13 through 14 Romans 13, verses 13 through 14, Paul wrote, Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Now you may say, well, what was Naaman's lust? What do you mean by that? One was he wanted to keep his position. When you work hard to get to a position, if you've been promoted or perhaps you even own a company or you're way up the, the food chain, or you're a supervisor like Brother Abel, you'd like to keep your position. You, you don't want to just give it away because that's giving money away. You worked hard to get there. How about your life? 
You say, well, I, I mean, I'm not afraid to die. I'm a Christian, but I'm not in a hurry. <laughs> I'd like to do this on the Lord's timetable and not hasten anything. Well, those are physical lusts that we have. And they're not all bad. It's not bad. The, the Bible says no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it as the Lord does the church. But if Naaman wasn't concerned about position, if he wasn't concerned about his own life in favor of being concerned about God's word and obeying it, then he would have said something like this. I'd rather be demoted, fired, or even killed before I bow my knee in the house of Rimmon. But instead, he asked for forgiveness ahead of time. Now, this brings up another doctrine that we're going to squash because it's a false doctrine. Catholics call this an indulgence. That's what Naaman was asking for was an indulgence. He knew he was about to do something wrong, but he didn't want to be punished for it. So he asked for a pardon ahead of time, making provision for the flesh. This definition of the word indulgence is straight out of the catechism of the Catholic Church. In case one of them writes in and says, you're misquoting, you misunderstood. This is right out of their literature. Here's what it says. An indulgence is obtained through the church who, by virtue of the power of binding and loosing granted her by Christ Jesus, intervenes in favor of individual Christians and opens for them the treasury of the merits of Christ and the saints to obtain from the Father of mercies the remission of the temporal punishment due for their sins. Simply put, the Catholic doctrine of indulgence states that their church can intervene in favor of a Christian so that Christian isn't punished for committing a sin. From the front of the Catholic Holy Bible, Peace of Mind Edition, that's a funny name for it because they, none of them have peace of mind. They're scared to death. Here's a quote about indulgences. And this is from Pope Leo VIII. The faithful who spend at least a quarter of an hour in reading Holy Scriptures with the reverence due to the Word of God and after the manner of spiritual reading may gain an indulgence of three years. Those, however, who read at least a few verses of the Gospel and further kissed the book of the Gospels devoutly reciting one of the following invocations, through the gospel's words may our sins be blotted out, may the reading of the gospel be our health and protection, may Christ the Son of God teach us the words of the holy gospel, are granted an indulgence of 500 days. What a mess! That a man or woman, a body of people, could say they have in their power to call down some sort of forgiveness, remission of sin, just for you, Sister Nelda, or just for you, Brother Luke. Now, not for anybody else. It says individual Christians. Not only do those words add to the finished work of Christ, but it also says that the church can intervene or, by implication, 
not intervene on behalf of those who sin so they can receive a reprieve. Let me show you what the Apostle Paul said about sinning Christians. In case you ever wondered, well now, what do you think the Bible really says about this? What does Paul say about it? Well, he wrote this to the Corinthian church. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. Now, in your mind, I want you to put what he says alongside the doctrine of the Catholic Church that I just read you from their own words. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Wow. It's apparent that this person committing fornication was a Christian being a member of the Corinthian church. And also the last few words of verse 5 differentiate between the destruction of the flesh and the saving of the spirit. Paul said, I'd rather that person die and go on to heaven than to continue his fornication. I believe that's a, a good interpretation of that. There may be others. Here's another scripture just so we can really understand why Naaman should not have asked Elisha to pardon him ahead of time for bowing down in the house of Rimmon. This is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 14 through 15. Again, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet, count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. That's a Christian. In this case, Paul said, that sinning Christian, you have no company with him. But remember, he's not your enemy. He is your brother. Doesn't sound like the Apostle Paul, and therefore God was a fan of indulgences. In John chapter 8, a harlot was about to be stoned by the Jews. And you may remember the passage where Jesus saved her from death as he challenged those Jews. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And they dropped their rocks and went away. And in verses 10 through 11, John 8, 10 through 11, here's what it says. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman... He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. He did not say, 
Go and read the scriptures for a quarter of an hour each day and do it reverently and do it spiritually and I'll give you three years of probation. Jesus does not indulge sin, period. He died for it. He hates it. And we are to be dead to sin, but alive through the Spirit, not spared through the indulgence of the Catholic or any other church. In verse 19, back in our text, here's Elisha's answer. And he said unto him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. Notice Elisha did not answer the dilemma that Naaman posed to him. He didn't say, well, here's how you handle that. You, you do this, and if this happens, you do this. He said, go in peace. He did not say, it's okay, Naaman, I understand. God understands. Have you ever heard that? Somebody put something, well, nowadays on Facebook. You know, I have this and this going on in my life, but I'm a Christian. And some foolish person will say, well, God understands, as if to excuse it, as if to say, well, that's okay. Oh, he perfectly understands that it's not okay. It's okay to bow to Remen, but only under the circumstances you explain to me. No, he didn't say that either. Either He said, go in peace. And the word peace is a very common Hebrew word in the Old Testament. It's shalom. Listen to how it's used in Psalm chapter 85, verses 8 through 10. Psalm 85, 8 through 10. I will hear what the Lord, I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Listen to this. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Without righteousness, there is no peace. Without salvation, there is no righteousness. Only God would be righteous, and none of us would be had salvation not been brought in the form of the Son of God dying for us. And sin, on the other hand, never brings peace. And peace is not found in the way of sin. So by no means was Elisha telling Naaman, go in peace and bow in the house of Rimmon. It's okay. When he said go in peace, he could have also said go in righteousness. Because righteousness and peace have kissed each other. If anything, Elisha's farewell statement to Naaman was to contradict what Naaman said he was about to do encouraging him to go in the way of peace instead. If you give me a dilemma like this and you say, I just want to make sure the Lord's going to forgive me and you spend five or ten minutes, if we get that far, if I let you go that far, telling me about this dilemma, why you need to sin, I'm not going to try to answer you point for point for point because then you're going to come back and have something else to say and it'll just never be over. I'm pretty short with those conversations. But what I am going to tell you, in one way or another, is go in peace. You know what God's Word says. That's why you're having trouble reconciling your desire, whether it's right or wrong. 
You know what God's word says. Obey it. Go in peace. Well, that will close. Any questions or comments about the lesson? Father, thank you so much for meeting with us today by your spirit, through your word, and teaching to us these valuable truths that are not just matters of history, Lord, but are, as we would say, teachable moments where we can learn from you what the principles of the Bible are, what the commands are, and how they apply to our daily living. And, Lord, to never make provision for the flesh. Help each one of us who's listened today to make that commitment. By your grace, we will not make provision for the flesh. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.